Hello, and welcome to the Kidney Cast. I'm Laura Morris. And I'm Ari Deckard. And this is our podcast where I interview Ari about his experiences with Alport syndrome, his three kidney transplants, and all of his other health and medical stories. Last week, we talked about the last time, or I guess the most recent time, <laughs> right. Ari was in the hospital for uh, CMV, cytomegalovirus. And this may be the last regular episode of the Kidney Cast. Right, exactly. We're going to wrap up. <laughs> exactly. So the way we're going to wrap things up is... First of all, we've talked about all these things that have happened to you, mm -hmm. and also over the course of the previous 29 episodes of the podcast, <laughs> at the end of every episode, I've asked you how you're doing. Right. So I think there's a general sense of your day-to-day. -day. Yeah. But I think we should talk about what's going on with you right now. What are the things that you still deal with? So, summary of Ari's health stuff, kind of. Circa right now. Circa right now. Okay. Well, I've had three kidney transplants. So that means several things. One, I have a bunch of really large, fancy scars on my abdomen. They actually form a really giant arrow pointing straight down at my crotch um, just because of that's how it worked out. Um, the big middle line is from removing the myxoma. And actually, as a result of a little bit of that, my abdomen on one side is uh, a little bit distended, so I'm a little bit asymmetrical. Yeah, they changed the shape of your belly button. They did, but very few people see me with my shirt or even especially pants off, so um, that's mostly a thing that I know about me. I take a number of medications every day, twice a day. I take three immunosuppressants. I take a medication for kind of controlling calcium that also has some research behind it that helps out kidney health, uh, especially in the blood vessels. I take a blood pressure medication. I take a low-grade uh, like heartburn medication that helps with some of my stomach stuff. And I also take another medication to kind of keep all the CMV stuff repressed. So relatedly then, my tummy tends to be more tender more easily. Sometimes certain foods. I think like every once in a while we'll go someplace very fancy and they've got like foie gras on the menu and I'll have a little bit and it tastes delicious and then it doesn't always um, go well with me. Um, but more often the real issue with my um, sort of tender tummy is that anytime I'm a little bit sick in any way I also have an upset stomach. Um, which is not fun. And occasionally, like, having coffee or something makes me go, ooh, not great. I have gout, which means that every once in a while, I start having tender toes, usually in my left foot. And so I might start limping, and I have to take an extra medication for a few days to make that go down. But I haven't had a, a very severe um, gout break in at least a year which is really nice. You've had some milder ones. Yeah, very uh, generally mild, like noticeable, but not like, oh my goodness, I can't put weight on this foot. Your primary way of managing the gout is through diet. Right. And that was the next thing I was going to talk about. Because of my transplants and because of my gout, 
and because of my tummy stuff, I have a restricted diet. Maybe I should just say I watch and think about my diet a lot in big and small ways. So I don't really eat red meat because of the gout, um, except for special occasions. I don't really eat seafood um, for the same reason. I limit my caffeine intake pretty severely. I very occasionally have alcohol. And by very occasionally, like it evens out to be about twice a month at most. And there are definitely some months where I don't drink at all. Um, and when I do drink, it's never more than a drink. I also don't have anything raw because my immune system is suppressed. I'm careful to not have too much potassium or too much phosphorus. And I have an internal list of foods that have those things in them. Um, I avoid high fructose corn syrup whenever possible. And I generally speaking, try to kind of watch my sugar, um, not in the way a diabetic does, but like my sugar intake. When you were struggling with the CMV before we knew exactly what it was, you were just having a lot of stomach and digestive troubles. Yes. I remember one of the things they floated as a possibility was some form of celiac disease. Oh, man, that was fun. Yeah. And we were really worried because there are heavy dietary restrictions that go along with that. Right. That's what the whole gluten thing is about. Yeah. Right. And it can be very risky if you violate that diet, if you have celiac disease. Mm -hmm. And I do remember joking at one point that with your kidney diet restrictions and your gout restrictions and your new whatever the tummy problem <laughs> restrictions were, that the only thing you'd ever be able to eat was steamed broccoli. Yeah, that was eventually going to be it. Yeah. Like maybe some rice and I could smell something else to flavor it, basically. Uh, fortunately, it was not that. It, it, there was a point, I think, I was sitting in a waiting room to have a test for that disease, and I was sitting there thinking, you know, these die rolls so often go against me. Like, so often they are, they say, well, you know, there's like a 20% chance that this is what you have, or 10% chance that this is what's going to happen to you. And I think, uh-oh, I'm usually in that small sliver. And they had even said, we don't think it's this, but we should definitely eliminate it because it could cause all these symptoms you're having. And I went, oh my goodness, I'm sitting here and it's going to be this. Now this too. That's exactly how I feel whenever they say, oh, well, there's the smallest chance it could be this weirdo thing. Yeah. Or this treatment we're about to do works 80% of the time. There's definitely a part of me that always prepares for, okay, so when this doesn't work, or okay, so when it turns out <laughs> to be the, the weird bad thing... Right, right. Um, Go, what's the opposite of gambler's fallacy? That's what we both have. I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, but this time it worked out, and I was, uh, I was really glad of that. It's just this other terrible thing that is mostly um, taken care of. So you take your medications twice a day mm -hmm. to take care of your kidney. You manage yes. your diet to take care of your gout and CMV. Right. Your immunosuppressants do leave you vulnerable to getting sick way more often, which we've talked about extensively. We have. So I I feel like I tend to have some kind of low-grade sniffle almost all the time. That's not quite true, but it feels true because I'll get this little thing and I'm being really, really careful and then it'll fade at around the time that I maybe get a different little thing. You know, I work with kids. Currently, I work with kids ages like 11 to 18 and especially 11 year olds you know 
they still have snot all over everything. As much as some of them think they are very grown, they still do. And I wash my hands all the time. I have a giant bottle of hand sanitizer on my desk. I don't touch things that I shouldn't, but it can still um, happen pretty easily. We talked about how the CMV was the last time you were hospitalized. Right. And that was a few years ago. I did think last year there was a strong chance you could be hospitalized just because you got sick from stuff at school. Yeah, I I kept thinking I was on the verge of that. Um, I missed quite a bit of work last year. Uh, several times, more than three times, I missed a full week um, because I was out for two days. And so I went to my doctor and they said, oh, you have bronchitis. Oh, you have something that looks like bronchitis and isn't, but might as well be, or something like that, uh, multiple times. And so you should take the rest of the week off to, to rest. And I missed lots of individual days just in a way where, like, I'm feeling really terrible, but if I take one day, I can kind of get enough energy that I can then make it through the rest of the week and have a weekend and then go back the next week. It was a really tough year. And I think it was a really tough year for everybody in the New York area who had a weak immune system. From talking to my doctor, because I said, like, this is really a problem, you know, <laughs> um, my bosses try to be understanding. But when you have somebody who's missing so much work, like it, it affects things. And he said, well, you know, actually, I've been thinking you were one of the lucky ones. And I said, well, what do you mean? Are you serious? Because I've missed like a lot of days. And he said, well, there were several very serious noroviruses and rhinoviruses this last year. And a lot of transplant patients were hospitalized for a long time because they caught one. So he said, you must actually be doing something right that you're being so careful. And I thought, wow, okay, this is a really good little signpost about what, um, about really what it means to be immunosuppressed. Because I think, oh, yeah, you know, I'm a little stuffed up. I'm a little draining here or, or something like that. And that's what it means. But that's not what it means. It means like, oh, these other serious things when... You weren't just draining and a little stuffed up. Like you had nights where all night long we were both awake because you could not stop coughing. And it was that deep, rasping, oh, unproductive yeah. cough. Like I, I will remember that cough forever. <laughs> you know, people talk about that form of torture that's just a drop of water hitting you in the same spot. Mm -hmm. Listening to you cough all night was the auditory equivalent of that drop of water. <laughs> it was, it's really hard to yes. hear somebody you love. It's, it sounds really painful. Neither of us can sleep. You know, it was not just a stuffy nose. No, it wasn't. And I, I think I was being unclear. That was truly terrible. And the cough was awful. And the symptoms were very, very noticeable and strong. I meant the general low-grade thing that I tend to have during the school year and sometimes during the summer is what I often think of as the common or logical result of being immunosuppressed. But the actual logical result or um, scary part of being immunosuppressed is what happened last year. And the scarier version is, had I had to be hospitalized for that, that would have been really, really serious. Um, and it, it could have been. It's the kind of thing that can lead to losing transplants. So you've mentioned several times you had to miss work. And yeah. I know that was really hard on you. Yeah. And there were times where I had to negotiate with you a little bit. Like, you were coughing till 3 a.m., please don't go to work. Yeah. You're stopping to go throw up, please don't go to work. Right. Talk a bit about how that feels. 
Uh, wow. Okay. I, I feel like I have talked about this a little bit in earlier episodes, but it's a hard thing. And sometimes I, I sort of put it at the feet of teaching. Um, and I know that this is maybe more about me than it might be about other people. Um, my job is really important to me. Um, not just because it's my job, but because teaching is important to me and I feel a real responsibility to my students. It's rooted in uh, several things. One is that consistency is really, really vital to basically every aspect of education. You know, it's, it's super important to classroom management. It's super important to the actual learning process. It's important for the relationships that we as teachers try to have with our students, it's really, really vital. And so when I have to be gone, even if it's just missing a day, it interrupts that. But it's also a thing where I just really care about being there. Uh, I care about doing that job well, um, basically for those reasons I just said, that like I want to be there doing the next day, doing the next day, doing the next day. Music is a specific place where consistency is important. You have to play every day as much as possible. Or some of my classes, I only see them like twice a week. And so if I miss once, then they will have not played their instrument for seven days. And that's almost like resetting your playing at the level that, that they're at, at that beginner level. And all of these things obviously make my life easier if I have that consistency. But more important, I want my kids to have the best chance at success and feeling successful as possible. And when I can't be there, that hinders that. There's also a lot of reasons for this, but uh, I generally can't just say, practice your instrument while I'm gone, kids. There's certain liability issues and other things where they don't want me doing that. And honestly, when I do ask them to do that, they don't very much, and I probably wouldn't have either as much as I like playing and practicing. So um, me being there is important, and it's important to my student success, and so it's important to me. And so it's really hard um, to have to take a day, much less having to take a week or two days or however long. Um, and I said all of that first. There's a whole second thing where even though it's a salaried position, after a certain number of days, your pay starts to get docked because that's how the contract works. And, um, you know, that's not ideal. We've got to eat. <laughs> and um, that's just a whole extra level of it. So anyway, I, I always I feel really guilty when I can't be at school. Well, I think that's the key thing that I was getting at. I asked you about this and you gave me a lot of the logistics of music <laughs> teaching and yeah. a little bit about teacher pay and walked around a little bit how it makes you feel. Mm. And I think that's a big part of this. When you say you feel guilty, that's one sentence, but it is so much of you. Yeah, that's true. I guess I guess you're right. I was walking around that. That when I'm talking about I want my students to succeed, that is something that is really, really important to me. I mean, it's my professional responsibility to help them succeed, but it's also something that I feel really responsible for. Not just when I say professional responsibility, I mean that's a thing that like I am sort of held responsible for. 
But that's a kind of thing that, for me, nobody needs to hold me responsible for because I feel responsible for. It's my job in that they pay me for it, but it's also my job because I've said, this is my job. This is what I do. It's really important to me, yeah. Um, I Education is really important to me. I come from a family of educators. Uh, it's really, really important to me. And I, the cheesy thing is always, and this came up weirdly at a staff meeting earlier this week, and we were kind of joking about it, but education good education, is foundational to democracy. And that's true whether you teach U.S. history or science or music or knitting. It's foundational and vital. And I take that really, really seriously, and I feel that very, very deeply. And I know how cheesy and silly that sounds, but it's really, really important to me. And because it is... I feel really guilty when I have to miss even just a day. Um, there have been times where I've had to like miss one class because, you know, think that happens at a school sometimes. Well, I've got to be here. Can somebody cover my class just for this one day? This weird thing has happened. And I feel really bad about it. Not just because I'm imposing on somebody else or anything else like that, but because I am interrupting for a very good reason you know, those 24 to 30 kids education for one day. I think one of the things that you and I have both had to get used to and that we've talked about somewhat is this guilt. Mm -hmm. Because right now it's about missing days of work. Yeah. But before it was about <laughs> getting through grad school. Right. And making sure you did it the best way possible and weren't coasting. And before that, it was about getting your degree. And yeah. before that, it was, oh my gosh, I'm in my 30s and I don't have my degree yet. Right. Or I'm letting people down because I can't go hang out tonight. I'm sick or I've got dialysis. Mm -hmm. It's probably true that other people with chronic illness and disability carry around that guilt of, this is my thing, but it's causing either inconveniences for other people or I'm not doing my job as well as I could if I didn't have this thing. Right. Or I'm not achieving what I could. Mm -hmm. That is definitely part of your experience. And it's definitely a thing that I've seen you continue to work through. Yeah. And so if this is our last episode, I think it's really important to acknowledge that. And also, I don't know, to say <laughs> you should not have to feel guilty. This is not a thing that you chose. Yeah. Yeah, to give you the goodwill hunting hug and say it's not your fault. Um, I'm, I'm making light of it, obviously, because I'm uncomfortable, but um, it's not. <laughs> it's not our fault. And um, I think sometimes that's a little bit where I'm at. Like, I know it's not my fault, but it's not my kid's fault either. It's not my colleague's fault. It's not your fault. But all those people who are not me that I just mentioned, are impacted by this thing that I bring to the table, that I bring to all of your lives. And it's not my fault either, but I bring it. But you also bring all the other things about yourself. And this podcast has only been about the kidney stuff, the Alport <laughs> stuff. Yeah. But you're more than that. I am. And you bring so much more into everyone's life. And I think I, more than anybody else, can say it's been worth it. Well, I'm glad. I really am. You know, I try to do that. I try to make sure that it's worth it. But yeah, it's, you know, it's rough. It's, um, it's a tough thing to grapple with. 
So I said at the top, this is probably our last regular episode. Yes. Because in the very first episode, we said, we're going to get to the end of this story at some point. Mm-hmm. And we've taken some diversions to talk about individual issues. But that doesn't mean the kidney cast is gone forever. Right. I would never be so silly as to think, we are done ever having anything come up with Ari's health. Yeah. So probably the, with the podcast, there may be a no news is good news approach that I can't imagine a new good thing happening that's worth talking about. But if things happen, we will probably, when there's time, sit down and record an update. Mm -hmm. And if other big news happens in Alport's or kidneys, you know, if we see the kidney signal up in the sky, we'll suit (laughs) up and get our podcast gear out. (laughs) Yeah, the Neff signal. So as we're wrapping up, are there any closing thoughts you have that you want to share about your experience, about transplants, about illness, about rare diseases? Any big, major, thematic things you want to share? Well, (laughs) uh, yeah, I guess, I mean, we've already kind of touched on this here, but I think that it's fair to say and easy to see that dealing with chronic illness is difficult. And just the way we structured this whole podcast kind of speaks to this, but that when you have chronic illness, it can kind of feel like a series of medical events. It can feel like you're just biding your time until the next thing. You know, right now everything's okay, but something's on the horizon. And it might be something good, but usually it's it's not, and hopefully it'll be mostly a false alarm. And that's that's a tough way to live. I feel like I'm in a better place now with respect to that idea, for a couple of reasons. One, I'm actually really, really stable. You know, I I have a transplant, and so the space between events has greatly, greatly increased. Like we said, okay, so last year I was sick a lot, and sometimes for long periods of time, and that was truly miserable. And it was definitely affected by the immunosuppressants and that kind of thing. But in a certain way... I was just sick, like people get sick. Not exactly, you know, it was worse, and I had other concerns. But in a certain way, it was just like, yeah, I got a virus, and so I got sick. And then, you know, before that, it had been like two years when I had CMV. And before that, it had been two years with the myxoma. Right, yeah. And two years is a really nice long time. A lot of stuff happens in two years. Lots of good stuff. Lots of good stuff happens. Lots of neutral and bad stuff maybe too, but lots of things happen. There's a lot of living that goes on. And I've been really fortunate with this transplant especially that it's been really stable. There hasn't been that much of anything going on once everything kind of got going. And I think in a way this this idea of living from event to event kind of speaks to the the thing that we talked about a few episodes ago where I said that like there was a time in my past when I felt a little bit scared of having another transplant in a way because the stability of dialysis was appealing. And that's kind of what I'm saying. Even though dialysis itself is the event, it's very regular. If you're going in center, you go in three times a week and three times a week you have a medical event, but it's a very regular understood medical event. There's really no 
unknowns there, usually. And because it keeps you stable, there's often not some crazy thing that's happening uh, that's unexpected. But like I just said, you know, it's also its own series of medical events. And this is much, much better. And I guess I, I kind of want to say now as an older person than I was, <laughs> that um, it's taken me a long time to kind of figure out how to do this. And I needed to sort of experience all of that stuff in order to learn how to do this better. But that instead of kind of waiting for the next medical event or always being worried about what's around the corner, I, I'm much better at going, okay, so I'm doing this now. This is what's happening right now. I'm living like this is what it is, not this is what it is for now. I don't think I'm ever going to get that little voice out from the back of my head that says like, okay, but careful, you know, because that's... That's not always a bad thing <laughs> to have that on your mind that um, you do have to be careful. You know, I can't just do anything, but that traveling as we have done and just doing things because we can or, hey, I'm just taking a weekend because I'm taking a weekend is nice and I can just enjoy that. I can enjoy working and I can enjoy not working and I can enjoy spending time with you and talking to my family on the phone or by email and sharing goofy memes and have sort of, I guess, like, quote unquote, regular good times and bad and just live instead of like live plus limbo or live plus, uh oh, what's going to happen? I feel like that sort of was me describing my experience and a little bit trying to give advice. Uh, it was a bit of a mess, but um, that for me is, is sort of the biggest theme and one of the biggest kind of arcs in my understanding and feelings about being somebody with chronic illness. Learning how to live your life in the present. Yeah, basically. <laughs> See, you said it in one sentence. As my own closing thought. Okay. If I think about my experience as your partner... And so the disease has affected me really differently and as a second degree kind of thing. Mm -hmm. The thing that I take away from it, in addition to what you just said about learning to live life mm -hmm. and stay in the present, is the importance of kindness. You are able to do everything you are today. You're alive today. Yeah. Because someone we will never meet made a kind choice. Yeah. And before that, you and I had time to get to know each other and fall in love because your uncle Michael made a kind choice right? to donate his kidney to you. Mm -hmm. And your, your life has been dependent on it. My life has been so substantially impacted by other people choosing to do the giving, compassionate thing. Yeah. It has made such a difference to me when a doctor or lots of times with nurses, when rather than just doing their job, they take that extra effort to be kind, to, mm -hmm. to look out, to just be friendly, which is not necessarily part of their job, but is a, a crucial thing that has made such a huge difference. And I have tried to take that lesson and make that extra effort to be kind myself and to work a little harder and give more. Yeah. And I think it's important to acknowledge the role that other people, even other people that I do not know, doing something good and being compassionate and giving, the difference that's made in our lives and that I hope to try and honor that with my own actions, even when I'm tired, even when I'm grumpy, 
to try to temper that, to try to instead, you know, make that little bit of extra effort and be friendly, yeah. be nice, be giving. Yeah. So then the last thing I think we should talk about is outside of just closing thoughts about Alport syndrome and transplants. Mm-hmm. What about this podcast? What have we learned here from doing this project? <laughs> um, I don't know what anyone else has learned, except sometimes personal details about me or about us. Uh, I hope that other people have taken, I don't know, maybe maybe there's been some good advice in here. And I hope that for other people dealing with similar or the same kinds of issues that just knowing that, hey, we had to do this crap, it was really hard. Um, you know that you're not alone, basically, and it's something that other people have done and gone through, and you can you can get through it too. But for myself, it's been a really interesting project, almost from the first episode, or even when we first started talking about doing this. It really made it really made my Alport syndrome and other other symptoms, other things that I have going on with me a little bit more present. You know, I I just said a little bit ago that I'm able to kind of live without thinking about all this stuff. And that's really nice. I'm not like pushing it away so I don't have to think about it or anything crazy like that. But doing the podcast has sort of forced or encouraged me to really think about all of these issues in a deeper way in a broader way, and just maybe make it more present in my life in a different way than it ever has been. You know, I have Alport syndrome every day. I've had it my whole life. Nothing's changed about that. But thinking about how I'm going to talk about it so that it's clear, thinking about things that happened years and years ago, and what do I think about that now, as opposed to just kind of remembering experiencing it, has kind of, it, it's been a overall a positive experience to like think about those things. And one of the biggest things that it has done in sort of making it more present is it's been another step in, I guess, my acknowledgement of my issues to myself, which sounds strange and kind of wishy-washy, I guess. But I talked about how like with the help of therapy and several other things, I finally sort of came to terms with the fact like, oh, I, I am disabled. I do have chronic illness. I have that stuff. And I do. And I did realize that. But the process of doing this podcast has helped me talk about it more, like literally in the podcast. But also, it's not like I'm talking about it all the time to other people, but it's made me aware of it in a different way. And one of the things I was thinking specifically about is um, because... My job is super important to me. Um, as a teacher, you know, we're always looking for other tools. And this became both a tool and, I don't know, it, it's a thing that I realized about myself as a teacher. That, like, whenever somebody's standing in front of a room of people that you want to share information with, um, anybody who's ever done that, teaching, giving a lecture, a speech, whatever, you want everybody to listen to you. You also want everybody to think you're amazing and that you're doing such a great job and, you know, get a ton of information out of it. But um, that's my job every day. And it's really hard because it's with teenagers who have short attention spans and have other things going on and who are really, really, really social creatures. And our students 
really like talking to each other. That is not unusual. If you think about your own experience in school, you would want to talk to each other too. In your average classroom, there is often some kind of small side conversation going on. That's super common. That was true when I was a student. It's been true every time I've been a teacher in my classroom and in other classrooms. Not the whole time, but sometimes. And I realized primarily because of like a slight change in awareness from doing this podcast, why that is harder for me to deal with than some other teachers um, or than I sort of feel like it should be. You know, I don't want anybody having a side conversation. I don't want them missing something important so I have to repeat it later or so they don't know and are lost. You know, all the reasons we don't want those things happening in a classroom. But there's this extra thing for me where sometimes it makes me very, very tense. And also I, I start to feel sometimes overwhelmed, like if there's two side conversations going on. And what I realized was that this is actually a function of my hearing. I have Alport syndrome. It affected my hearing. I wear hearing aids and I have pretty good hearing with hearing aids. And I'm also a trained hearer of things as a musician, but an environment that starts to get a little bit noisy is really, really tricky for somebody with a hearing impairment and sometimes especially with hearing aids to navigate. Um, hearing aids do not do the same job of filtering noise that natural hearing does. And in a certain way, because they're amplifiers, they actually inhibit the brain from doing that well. And so noisier environments are more confusing and more chaotic and more overwhelming for people with hearing aids and people who have a hearing problem. And so even in a just slightly noisy classroom, I start to feel, ah, and that had not occurred to me. And I've been teaching for a long time until this year. And so I started out by saying, gave me a tool. And the tool is that then having realized that, I was able to address it for what it was and talk to individual students and not just say, here's all the reasons you shouldn't be talking on the side, because they've heard that a million times, but just say, listen, in my classroom, I have this disability, and it makes it really, really hard for me to hear another student answering a question or asking a question or making a comment or if we're having a discussion when you're talking to each other like that. I know it's far away. I know you're trying to be quiet. I know, I know it's super important because everything's super important when you're 15, but I can't hear when you're doing that because I'm disabled. And <laughs> I know I felt like a little crass when I realized that, like, ooh, I'm leveraging my disability. And maybe I am. Um, but sometimes just by recognizing what the issue is, you're able to, you know, address it and deal with it on that level. And in that way, then I was able to sort of form a partnership and create a little bit of a bond in a different way with some of my students to help themselves out, to help me out, to help the classroom out. That was, it was like this weird revelation that occurred because of this greater and different awareness that ha I have had as part of the process of doing this podcast. I didn't even know that. Well, there's lots of things you don't know about me. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I learned while doing this and a big takeaway for me, mm -hmm. how hard it is to feel like you've told the comprehensive version of a story. Oh my or goodness. Or maybe particularly this story. Yeah. Every episode, except for maybe the first one, where it's, here's our podcast, here's our plan. <laughs> every time period we've covered or every issue we've talked about, mm -hmm. after I've edited it or I'm putting it together, I think, 
oh, there was one or two or eight more stories we could have told. Right. Or, oh, there was this part of it too. And, oh, this is another big important thing. And trying to keep these episodes to an appropriate length and not just explode outward, but also convey an accurate version of what the story is. Mm -hmm. That is so difficult. Yeah. You can never tell a whole story. Mm -hmm. You can never convey the whole experience of this disability or this illness or what it's like to get a transplant because it's this many layered experience. Yeah. And anytime you go, oh, this is important. I'm going to focus on this. You do have to do some cutting, some editing, yeah. you're, you're, even if you're just not looking at the audio file, but the editing you do in your own brain. Oh, I'm going to cut out this part of the story. I'm not going to emphasize this. Mm -hmm. Trying to convey holistically and realistically, this is the story. This is what this experience is like. You know, I, I hope we did a good job. There are some episodes I think like we really, really nailed it. Mm -hmm. But it's difficult. Yeah. Yeah. It really is. And because we're grappling with things that are often really emotional. You know, we didn't write out a script for anything. <laughs> if we had, we could have edited what we were going to say and made it really concise and pithy and um, pretty. Concise and pithy, we are not. No, no, especially me. Uh, <laughs> you do a very good job of making me sound slightly more so than I actually am. But um, I know I... I challenge you that way sometimes. But I've enjoyed this challenge, and I, my hope with the podcast, and I think your hope too, is for the people listening to it, if you also deal with chronic illness or disability, even if it's a different one, mm -hmm. I hope this is a little bit of an we're all in this together feeling. Since we started the podcast, you know, we got a bunch of emails from people we already knew or people you knew in the past right? kind of saying, I want to be there for you. What are some things I could have done? Or what are things I can do for other people in this situation? Yeah. And so if you're a listener who struggles with that kind of stuff, one of the things we might be able to say is there are probably a lot of people around you who want to give more help mm -hmm. and do more for you. And sometimes it's hard to ask, but sometimes it's hard to, to know what to give. Yeah. So take comfort in the fact that you're you're not alone. You know, we here have experienced that yeah. What you're experiencing, but you're probably not alone in your own life. Mm-hmm. Ari wasn't. Right. And then for people who don't deal with that, for listeners who don't deal with that, I hope that I hope maybe that they take the same lesson that I was talking about out of it. Make that extra effort. Try to try to do kindness to people mm -hmm. when you when you are able. Yeah. And really, really be an organ donor. Yes. Sign up, get that taken care of. It's it's quick and easy and it just it makes such a profound difference. It'll be one of the best things you, best good deeds you ever did, and it's pretty easy. It's super easy, yeah. I, I wanted to add something to what you're saying when you talk about kindness, that sometimes we think about kindness in this sort of context as, well, you know, make meals for somebody, or drive them to a doctor's appointment, or sit and listen to their fears about what's happening with their health. All wonderful terrific things to do, truly, and great. And if people can do that, fantastic. But I would say that in some ways, the biggest kindness that everybody who is around or near somebody with chronic illness can, can do is bring patience that, to my knowledge, and I am not the expert, but I know a fair number of people with different kinds of chronic illnesses that one of the common denominators is that we are often essentially more exhausted. You know, uh, whether we're more easily sick or just our sickness 
takes more energy that unfortunately sometimes that can lead to crankiness unfortunately that can lead to not following through on plans um and i'm not saying you know that's okay but i am saying that sometimes just be a little bit patient you know because i know sometimes when i'm at my worst i forget all my words and i'm trying to communicate and it it's not word salad but it's me talking around an idea for like 4 minutes that would have taken a sentence if i was more i was going to say more better like that if i was feeling better i would be able to communicate better but because i'm not i can't and just be a little bit patient with the 4 minutes because yes it's 4 minutes but it's only 4 minutes and um i think that that truly like that can be very hard sometimes but in some ways it is easier than some of the things we traditionally think of as kindness. You don't have to show up with a basket of cookies or with a right, lasagna. Or, yeah, or just hold somebody's hand for an hour at the hospital, just recognizing, hey, this person has this thing. They're probably dealing with a whole bunch of extra stuff right now. Maybe I need to just go and take a breath, and it's going to be okay, and that's how I'm going to help them out. 100% agree. <laughs> we got a bit of listener mail about oh. our last couple episodes. Okay. Um, some of them in direct response to the finances episode that we did. Mm. And I don't feel comfortable reading other people's emails in that regard and getting yeah. into any kind of detail. But I do want to really recognize and acknowledge the emails we got mm -hmm. and emphasize people were saying, this feels like my experience, being on the phone with insurance companies all the time, being afraid all the time, being denied coverage. This is not an experience that's just exclusive to Ari no. or his family. This is a, a widespread issue and why good healthcare policy is so, so important. Yes. And again, why taking care of our fellow people is a really crucial thing for all of us to do. Yeah, it matters. So I, I really, I appreciate so much getting all of the emails. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I want to convey the feeling I have to the to the rest of the audience that <laughs> this is a thing that lots of people go through. And I hope that you can be supportive of good legislation to protect people with disabilities and protect people with health problems. Yeah, me too. And this is the last regular time I'm going to ask this. <laughs> so I hope the answer is good. Ari, how are you feeling? <laughs> well, I really want to give a, a good answer. Um, I'm a little under the weather. I can feel that stuffiness. I've had a bit of a cough. Um, and I have a really, really big week coming up. So sort of in fitting in with some themes, I guess, uh, I know that this next week or two, um, not just at work, but at home, is really going to be sort of about managing energy levels. It's very easy for me to overdo because I get enthusiastic and I want to pump up my students or be really exciting. And I still want to do that. But I also know that um, I have lower reserves right now because I'm I'm a little stuffed up. I have this cough and I don't want to end up like sick sick. Uh, so I'm like, okay, but I'm also sort of putting myself on notice like I have to do sometimes. Remember, there are limits. But I also, I guess, I kind of want to echo what you just said, which is that um, aside from my physical health, I've really enjoyed doing this project. I don't think we imagined that we would go quite this many episodes before we were done with the story and our little side uh, discussions, but it's been a really great positive experience. 
I hope that it has helped some people. I hope that it's at least been interesting for people. And I hope that we have other things to say in the future that are not, you know, scary. You know, um, if in the future we have to do like a recording in the hospital, I guess we could do that. But I would rather that we're doing some cool recording like, hey, guess what? Pig kidneys are a viable option now. Go nuts or something. I, I don't know. But um, this has been hard sometimes. Um, it's been challenging, but it's also been really fun and really interesting. And um, I've really enjoyed sharing it with you and with our listeners. Me too. And every week I say thank you to you for recording with me. Yeah. I also want to say thank you to our listeners. Really and truly thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you to everybody who signed up to be an organ donor. That is an incredible, wonderful thing to do. Mm -hmm. Thank you to Ari's parents, Martha and Glenn, <laughs> for doing that really fun, awesome episode with us. That's yeah. still one of my favorites. And thank you for all the things that they and the rest of our families do for us. Yeah, no kidding. Thank you to the Alport Syndrome Foundation, who was really welcoming to us and who did that really great event mm -hmm. in New Jersey that we went to. It's really been cool to discover and interact with a broader community. Yes. And thank you to all the awesome doctors and patients on the hashtag NefJC. <laughs> yes. On Twitter, that's been really wonderful. Dr. Michelle Rowe, Dr. Joel Toff. I probably got Dr. Rowe's name right because she told me on Twitter and has <laughs> messed up Joel's name. So <laughs> thank you to both of them and all the other people. Truly, it's been a great experience making this podcast and discovering kidney and chronic illness communities. Yeah. And I hope the next time we sit down to record a kidney cast, it's because we've got some cool, interesting news or things to say. Yeah, absolutely. I look forward to that. Bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs>